Well, as your bulletins say, my name is David Short, so any problems you have, my email david at sjvan.org. I respond 24 hours a day. My address is, no. Just kidding. My name's Chris, it's lovely to be with you as David is unwell and recovering. Our society today is fractured. We're divided. Out there, but in here too. There's a former CIA analyst named Martin Gurry who comments, the digital revolution has shattered society. So the public is not one thing. It's highly fragmented, and it's basically mutually hostile. The public is mostly now people yelling at each other and living in bubbles of one sort or another. We live in a time of tribalism, of skepticism, and hostility toward others of whom we are different. And these same forces out there threaten us in this church. Fragmentation and disunity threaten our defense of the gospel and our promotion of it as well. So what should we do when we see division and discord, distrust, and the dissolution of shared values and virtues? How do we witness to the truth of the gospel by being one in Christ? Pastor Paul from prison has the same concern about his promising parish in Philippi. In chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, he writes about the one danger that he's concerned about for this church. Only let your lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he says. Now listen, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then again in chapter 2, verse 2, be of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is writing this letter to try to get a community of Christians to live together in unity, united in defending and promoting the gospel in the midst of disunity and discord. Paul wants this church to be a community that's united in suffering, united in humility, united in considering the needs of others above their own so that the gospel may be defended and through them it might progress to the glory of God. Disunity will ruin a church, just as disunity will ruin a society. It's the single thing Paul is most concerned about for the Philippians. And so he appeals for unity, their unity in the gospel. Unity defending the gospel amidst suffering and opposition from within and from without. A unity that's been forged through humility, through considering the needs of others more significant than yourself as we strive side to side for the faith of the gospel. This is the message of last week's text. And this week, continuing on, we see what motivates our unity. What is the model by which our unity is molded? Paul points to only one thing that has the power to unite all people in gospel fellowship. The solution to any disunity is not to try harder. 
It's not the seven steps of highly effective churches. The model and motivation for our unity is the gospel itself, the gospel himself, which is God's good news of great joy that unites all people. The only thing on earth that contains within it the power of God to unite the most divided is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul writes in Romans, for it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone. Paul appeals to unity amongst division by pointing us to the gospel of God's grace. So let's look there together. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or if you look at your footnote, you could read it, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Three times so far in this sentence, Paul has called Philippians to have one mind. And now in chapter 2, verse 5, he tells them the one mind that he wants them to have. Share in the mind of Christ. Have Christ's mind amongst yourselves. If you are in Christ, then have the mind of Christ together. Be the body of Christ by having the mind of Christ together. Paul says, consider what's going on in Jesus' mind so that you may be one with him. So now Paul takes us into the very mind of Christ to show us the motivation and the model and the means of our unity. This is holy ground upon which we are going to tread. Let's look at verse 6. Paul says, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul brings us into the will of Christ. He reveals to us how Jesus thinks, what motivates him, who he is, and how he lives. I've broken our passage into three parts. First, we enter Christ's mind in verses 6 to 8. Then we enter God the Father's mind in verse 9. And then finally, in verses 10 to 11, we enter the mind of a united humanity in response to what God the Son and God the Father have done. Christ's mind, the Father's mind, the united human mind. Let's go. First, Christ's mind. Paul writes that we understand Jesus' mind through understanding his two natures, his two forms, and through also recognizing Jesus' two actions. So under that first point, Christ's mind, there are now two natures and two actions. Christ's first nature is revealed in verse 6. Consider Christ, Paul writes, who though in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus is fully God. That's what in the form of God means. He's not a demigod. He's not a prince of heaven, but he is God himself. This echoes the beginning of John's gospel that says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God. Jesus is the word. Therefore, Jesus is God. And though God 
existing eternally in all glory and power and sovereignty and knowledge and immortality, Jesus did not consider his nature, his divinity, as something to be grasped or hoarded for his own benefit. Jesus could have fully remained in the form of God forever, enjoying the status and glory and goodness of that infinitely exalted nature. But he didn't. Jesus will not do something that only serves himself. Jesus refused to simply exist in God's glory for his own comfort and praise. The nature of God is not selfish. He is generous. He is gracious. He is good. That's his first nature. Jesus is fully God. And from this incredible revelation that Jesus is equal to God, we now read of his first action in verse 7. He made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself completely. Jesus poured himself out, all his status, all his power, all his glory. He emptied himself completely. He made himself nothing. It's astounding to our selfish, hyper-individualistic, success-oriented selves. This makes no sense. We can scarcely imagine a king emptying himself or a master reducing herself to be less than her servants. Why would anyone sacrifice their status and success to become less and lower than others? Now, why would one who is equal with God therefore empty himself, make himself nothing. It surpasses all understanding. It confounds all of our selfish sensibilities. But this describes the nature and the action of God of the gospel revealed in Jesus. This is the God we worship. This is the true God, and this is truly what he is like. Jesus, though in the form of God, will not hoard his status for his own sole benefit, but rather he chooses to make himself nothing. Why? We read on, verse 7. Taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. Here's the second nature of Jesus. The form of a human servant. The posture of a slave. The reason Jesus makes himself nothing, empties himself completely, manifests his divinity with mortality, is so that he can take a new form, a new nature. And the new form is that of a servant, a slave. He makes himself nothing, a slave, born as a human baby. Words fail as we contemplate the willful descent of Jesus from divinity to human servant. God becomes a man and takes the form of a servant. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Those are his two natures. Fully God, emptied out into a feeble human frame. Fully God, yet made nothing. Common person, a carpenter's kid, as a child, a homeless refugee, born to an unmarried teenage girl in a barn in Bethlehem. Consider Christ's mind and have this mind amongst yourselves, 
Jesus has two forms, two natures, fully God and then shockingly fully man. He willfully makes himself nothing. He empties himself into a human frame. Now notice here, this is his action. He doesn't let himself be emptied. He empties himself. He makes himself nothing. Jesus is not passive in the incarnation. He's the one who's doing it. What an outrageous thing for God to do. Why would he do this? We find out as we journey into the mind of Christ by now reading the second action of Jesus, which follows in verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Consider Christ's mind, Paul pleads. Jesus is fully God, equal with God, and yet willfully makes himself nothing, pours himself into a human frame, into the form of a servant, a slave. And being found in this human form, he now humbles himself. That's his second action, by becoming obedient to the point of death. See, the humbling and the humiliation of Jesus extends far before anything mortal. He humbles himself further than that by now becoming obedient unto death. And this is why he came. Now, note again, it's Jesus who is humbling himself. It's not the Romans. It's not Pilate. It's not the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the soldiers or the crowd. They're all culpable, of course, just as we are, but they're not in control. Christ is. He's still God. He is still in control. Through his trial and his crucifixion, he is in control. He himself is humbling himself. He is willing his death. Consider Christ's mind, his thinking. This is the mind we are to have as we abide in him. Jesus, in the form of God, makes himself nothing. He becomes a servant, he enters a frail human frame, and he then humbles himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross. If you've never heard the Christian gospel before, you have to admit, this is a story unlike anything you've ever heard. This is unlike any other religion, any other God, any other myth, any human heroes that we've ever conceived. Why would Jesus do this? What could possibly explain why God the Son would empty himself, humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross? The key is found in the word obedient. Jesus humbles himself by becoming obedient. Jesus does all of this to obey the will of his Father. Father, take this cup from me. Jesus prays the night before he's killed. I don't want to do this. Please deliver me from the cross and the grave. But then immediately he adds, yet not my will, but yours be done. Our Father in heaven, Jesus teaches us to pray. Your will be done. Not my will, but yours be done. What motivates Christ, what is going on in the mind of Christ is only one thing. I want to obey my Father. Not my will, 
but yours be done. And the way Jesus obeys God the Father is by giving his life for our salvation. Our salvation is from God. That's what Paul wrote earlier in this sentence in chapter 1, verse 28. Our salvation is not earned. It's not deserved. It's a gift. It's grace. Jesus did all of this to be obedient to his Father's will. And he did it so that all of us could now be offered salvation. This is what God wants. And so Jesus obeys. Jesus describes his coming to earth this way in Mark chapter 10. He says, the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you know what a ransom is? It's the price you must pay to have a captive or a criminal freed. Jesus came to serve, to serve God and to serve us by giving his own life as a ransom for many. His life is the price it cost to buy ours. The gift of salvation, which is from God, cost God the life of his son to purchase. The very life of the very son of God is what you and I and our neighbors are worth to the father. I kind of feel like I should just be quiet for 10 minutes and let that wash over you. Your inherent value to God is limitless. He loves you. He has made you in his image. Whoever you are, however you are living, however you feel about him, he loves you. He so loves you. He so loves the world that he would give up his only child to save us. Jesus willingly empties himself, humbles himself to obey his father's will to buy us back from slavery to sin and to being a prisoner of death. Let's consider the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness, washing over me. This gospel, this person, contains the power of God for the salvation of everyone. The gospel is given for everyone. It's good news of great joy for all people. Because it's so unbelievably generous and undeserved. It is more gracious and beautiful and scandalous and challenging than anything any human has ever conceived or could ever even consider. The humility of Christ, the mind of Christ, is what now motivates our humility toward each other. The emptying of Christ models how we should be constantly self-emptying ourselves for others. This is the will of Christ. Consider it. Embrace it. Embody it. For then, we are truly the body of Christ. This is how Christian unity is formed. So don't focus on the disagreements we have with others here. Don't grumble. Consider Christ. Consider the mind of Christ. And be of the same spirit because we are Christ's body gifted with Christ's mind, and God's Holy Spirit dwells within us just as it dwelt in him. Therefore, be of one mind, which is yours in Christ. Okay, that's Christ's mind. And if you think I should have ended it there, remember to email me, david at sjvan.org. <laughs> it's not the end of our text. 
The story of the gospel does not end at Christ's cross. It does not end at the grave. It doesn't even end at the empty tomb on Easter morning. So far, we've only heard half the gospel. We can't stop here. The first half is about the descent of the Son of God to become a son of man, to empty himself and humble himself unto death, to obey his Father. And it's because of Christ, in response to Christ's obedience, that God the Father has been now moved to action. And this is the second half of the gospel. And it's outlined through two actions in verse 9 of God the Father in response to Jesus' self-emptying and self-humbling. These two actions reveal for us, secondly, the will of God the Father. Verse 9, therefore, because of what Jesus has done, God has highly exalted him. God exalts Jesus. He highly exalts him. This is the second half of the gospel. The resurrection and the ascension of Jesus are the exaltation of Jesus, above all, by the Father. God the Father shows his approval and his acceptance of Jesus and his self-sacrifice by raising him from the dead and by ascending Jesus to heaven, highly exalting him. That's God's first action. And then secondly, the Father bestows upon Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you remember God said in Isaiah, this is in chapter 42, I am the Lord and there is no other. I give my glory to no other. And then in our first reading, I am the Lord and there is no other. There's no God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There's none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And then this verse, to me, God says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. God is emphatic through Isaiah that he alone is God. He alone is the Lord. He shares his glory with nobody. That's God's will. Paul now quotes this Isaiah text directly saying that in response to Christ's self-emptying, self-humbling sacrifice to atone for our sin, God the Father has highly exalted him, and listen, bestowed upon him the name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. For the ancient scribes who copied out our sacred texts, you know, millennia ago, like Isaiah 45, whenever they came across God's name in the text, Yahweh, they wouldn't write it. They would write the word LORD in all caps initially. And then they came to a short form where instead of writing out LORD, they would write L-D, and they'd write a line on the top. Obviously not in English, but you get the idea. I'm not about to teach you Hebrew. So they'd write out the first and the last letter with a line on the top, just like that on the screen. It's shorthand. It's a code because the scribe felt, I am not worthy of writing out God's name. It's too holy. Well, this is the first papyrus we have of Philippians. It's from as early as the second century. 
could be a generation or two after Paul, potentially. You see in the text, if you zoom into it, that they use that same divine shorthand code. It's laced throughout it. You see that there's little lines above words that refer to God, just like in the Old Testament. God's name is not written out in full. They use that same code. You can see the lines, even if you don't read Greek. There you go. That's the oldest text of Philippians we have. That's our passage today. Well, when Jesus is mentioned in the most ancient Philippians text, the copyists do the same thing. They use that same divine code for Jesus' name as they do for Yahweh. They don't write out Jesus' name. They don't feel worthy because God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. Because the Father equates Jesus with himself, so do the people who wrote out our first Bibles. This pattern is found in every ancient manuscript we have. Here's another ancient record. This is from Sinai. This is from the 4th century. And if you look at Philippians 11, you see this. Same practice. The earliest copies we have of this ancient letter ascribes to Christ equality with God. Jesus is Lord. Use that word for Yahweh. Therefore, Yahweh is Jesus. And Paul tells us at the very end, Jesus isn't stealing glory from God the Father. He's adding to God's glory because Jesus and the Father are one. God has exalted Christ to sit at his right hand, to share his throne, to share his divine name and glory. And this is what Christ's ascension is all about. So you should come to our ascension service. Here is Christ's will, and here is God's will. Now, how on earth are we supposed to respond to this? <laughs> what should our will now be? Jesus tells us in verses 10 and 11. God does this so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the Father. Our response is with our bodies. The will of Christ and the will of the Father empowers us now to have a universal, united human will. First, we bow before him in worship and praise. And then second, we confess him with our tongues. Our response to the gospel of Jesus Christ is to first bow before him, to honor and adore him, to make ourselves less so that he might become more. To humble ourselves before our humble Lord, to give our lives to serve the servant king, to praise him for his passion, to live our lives on bended knee before the throne of God above. We are a people who unite when we worship who live as one with knees bent before our Lord and our God. That's our first response. And ultimately, Paul tells us, it'll be the universal response. There will come a day when Christ returns to consummate his kingdom on earth that every knee will bow. In the end, everybody becomes a worshiper of Christ, whether they want to right now or not, because he is God. He is Lord over all, heaven, earth, under the earth. He is Lord over your life, whether you acknowledge him now or not. Christ unites humanity. 
And finally, our second response will be to confess with our tongues that Jesus Christ is Lord. And again, this is going to be a universal reality. All of us will confess him. But those of us who follow him are called to confess him now to this perverse and crooked generation, to this fractured society of fragmentation and disunity and discord, to a world that is living in darkness. We are to shine as lights, holding fast to the word of life, the gospel of our salvation. But that's next week. Paul is appealing to unity amongst bickering believers. He's appealing to unity amidst suffering and self-interest. He implores the church to unify around the gospel, to defend it and ensure its progress. And in our text, he gives us the model and the motivation and the means by which we can live with one mind. And it's ours in Christ. We reveal the mind of Christ, the mind of God, and the mind of united humanity when we bow and when we confess. So let's practice what we preach. Let's lay our swords aside and let's unite as one. Let's bow our knees before him. Let's come worship and adore him. And together let's confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.